Well, this is Current Yield, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jim Grant, and uh, this is uh, first week back to school, I guess. We're recording on the eve of Labor Day, but uh, it just has a first day back to school feel about it. It's kind of a certain amount of dread. Or maybe that's because the 10-year yield is now approaching 1.35-ish or so, which was the bottom of 2016. So as a friend says, we're either in for the double bottom of all times or perhaps uh, the uh, combustion of the entire situation of no more than 10 years. But with us today is, uh, is his customary, Eric Whitehead is the dials, and uh, the great Evan Lorenz, uh, deputy editor of Grants, is here as it is want. And to my right is uh, Marty Fritzen. And Marty is the uh, CIO, the Chief Investment Officer of Lehman Livian Fritzen Advisors, LLC. Now that Lehman takes two ends, so as to uh, clear up any waggish confusion. Now, um, I want to say one thing about the New York Times. Now, the New York Times has come in for some heat. Have you been following this, Evan? Is this the bed bug thing? No, it's the uh, whole, uh, well, there's a certain amount of astringency between the Times and some of the power figures in uh, Washington, D.C. But I want, to, I, want to, uh, I want to absolve the Times of factual inaccuracy in one respect. Here's what the Times said about our guest today, Martin Fritzen, CFA. He said, quote, one of Wall Street's most thoughtful and perceptive analysts, period, close quote. I don't know. I, I, it's nice as far as it goes, and it's, it's certainly accurate. But it's, it, for example, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give you a, uh, a sample of, um, of critical praise a little closer to home. Uh, I've uh, written a book, uh, as is my want, biography of Walter Badgett, who was the editor of The Economist in the high Victorian age. And uh, here, is, uh, here are some uh, excerpts and reviews, a little like Marty's. Uh, they're nice. Uh, New Yorker calls it lively. New York Times, excellent. Financial Times, engaging. Wall Street Journal, terrific. Uh, financial news, terrifically enjoyable. Foreign affairs, entertaining. Ryan, gloriously eccentric. But still, there seems to be some holding back of critically acclaimed until you become to this, the greatest book in the English language. Yeah, that is a blurb. Marty, would you care to uh, read the attribution to that particular blurb? Yeah, that's uh, from Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Oh, what, how does that get in there? <laughs> right. Anyway, Marty, it's a pleasure to have you. And this is, I mean, this is a, you know, I'm sure that you are familiar with Sidney Homer's and Dick Silla's uh, 4,000 year oh, survey yes. of history, right? And uh, nothing like this. They say that nothing's new under the sun in finance. We live in newish times, no? Yeah. What is newish in your part of the world, which is, of course, principally high yield, but you are a most eclectic participant and observer. What is newish or new in the markets you watch most closely? Well, one thing that's almost unprecedented is that the spreads on the higher end called double B and single B is below its historical average currently by about 75 basis points. The triple C and lower portion of the market is about 100 basis points wider than its historical average. So in effect, they're giving opposite views about the outlook for the economy and the credit outlook, uh, the higher end essentially saying things are fine by the lower end because that'll do better if uh, things hold steady or uh, the market gains from here, hard as that might be to imagine. Whereas the uh, triple C and lower paper is saying, uh, you know, it looks like that recession these, risk. These are bonds we're talking about now. Yeah, now. Okay. yeah these are bonds. Yeah. How, how about the same spread in the so-called leveraged loan market? Leveraged loans, of course, being uh, uh, tradable uh, senior bank debt, uh, mostly secured, but not always secured. But how, how is how is this triple C segment of the leveraged loan market priced with respect 
or in comparison to the better rated uh, segments of that market. That's a very large portion of the loan market. In fact, there's been a tremendous expansion of the universe of rated issues by Moody's to the point where you really can't compare the statistics to the past because there are just ah. so many loan issuers. So uh, you know, it's, it's complicated life a little bit, but I think you are seeing uh, great uh, optimism there. And the high, you know, and I should emphasize that for the bond, the high yield bond market itself as a whole. Uh, the spread is uh, not only below historical average, which I put less emphasis on, as opposed to how does it compare to where the spread ought to be, given the risk factors that drive that spread historically. And uh, those in brief are the credit availability, uh, which is drawn from the Fed's quarterly survey of some of senior loan officers, a couple of uh, economic indicators, industrial production and capacity utilization that happen to be highly correlated, you know, more so than unemployment uh, or GDP, and, and the level of uh, five-year treasuries, uh, which is inversely correlated with the spread. So summing it all up, the spread is much wider to the tune of uh, like two and a half percentage points narrower than it ought to be, given where those factors are currently, which is quite an extreme. Now, we're, we're talking about we're talking about loans or bonds. Yeah, these are bonds. These are on bonds. Bonds. Yeah. Could we could, could, could we go back to loans for a second? But given the uh, perhaps incomparability of data owing to the vast expansion of this market, is it nonetheless the case that the loan market is imputing the same questionable economic future uh, with respect to the, as reflected in the pricing of various grades of loans? Are the, the worst rated loans trading at a big premium to the better rated loans or as reflecting the bond market or is it entirely different? Um, no, I don't, I wouldn't say it's entirely different. The loan market is pretty much in line with the bond market if you compare how those look on a rating for rating basis okay. over time. So yeah, so the, the uh, I, I would I, one important thing I'd have to say about that overall judgment of the high yield bond market, though, is that a lot depends on how you view the whole issue of quantitative easing during the period in which that has existed, where the Fed uncharacteristically has bought long dated bonds as opposed to operating solely in the short end of the uh, the market. Spreads have been uh, about 150 basis points tighter than they were under similar conditions you know, prior to that period. So it makes an important difference whether you view the quantitative easing period as being over. You know, I made the determination- It's never, never going to be over. Well, I made the determination around year end that uh, with the Fed looking to raise rates, they were talking about letting the portfolio run off, that at least we weren't doing more quantitative easing, but they quickly reversed tracks to the point where now I'm confused and I just put out both versions of this analysis. It's still somewhat overvalued, even if you no, take no. it that we're still in quantitative easing but not as to so as extreme. What is overvalued exactly? Well, this would be the uh, risk premium on the high yield index as a whole. So, in, in fact, the, the the entire high yield market is uh, much much too uh, expensive. Much too expensive. Yeah. You're a practitioner as well as an analyst. Are you are you finding anything to buy? Well, uh, we run a uh, 
income investing management business. So we're not restricted to high yield bonds. In fact, they're a relatively small portion, particularly now because of the valuation. The asset class uh, among those we look at, which also include preferreds, real estate investment trusts, uh, dividend growth stocks, closed end funds in a variety of asset classes, but all income generating. Uh, the one that stands out now really is the um, master limited partnership, which uh, gone through a rough period. It's not totally unexplained or baffling that uh, the spreads are, are and yields are high on those, but uh, we nevertheless uh, do see some value in that sector and, and in the aftermath of a lot of volatility in energy prices and also some unfavorable regulatory changes uh, affecting that uh, that sector. Yeah. So um, I didn't hear negative yielding uh, <laughs> government securities in that list of opportunities. Is that an omission? Is it intentional? Uh, yeah, it is intentional. Our uh, clients tell us they're, uh, they they want to preserve principal, but foremost, they want to generate income, not uh, pay it in. So well, uh, no, there's no accounting for taste, is there, Marty? No, no. I mean, uh, God bless you know those who uh, want to own negative yielding bonds. Uh, they're uh, fulfilling a role right now in some sense in financial markets, but that's uh, that's not our target market. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marty, as you kind of look at the uh, high yield market overall, loans plus bonds, like how junky is the market today and how does it compare to other, I guess, cyclical turns like um, on the eve of the 2008 recession? Well, it's actually improved from then. If you look at it, and, and again, I, I well, haven't- When you say improved, do you mean um, bonds or bonds plus loans? Yeah. Well, I, I, I would have to focus on bonds. I have to say I, I haven't uh, done a breakdown of the loan index in the same way. But on the bond side, the percentage in the bottom tier, you know, triple C and below, but not already in default is actually down from 24% at the you know the end of 2007 on the verge of the great recession to 14% currently that's counted by number of issues in the index and how they're rated and the, the significance of that is that say what you will about the rating agencies they do almost invariably get bonds down to somewhere triple uh, C or below and frequently to at least double C before they actually go into default so if you're concerned about defaults that's really the segment of the market market to look at. Now, you may have downgrades from, let's say, the single B sector to triple C and eventually uh, defaulting, but that triple C percentage is a pretty good indicator of the risk in, in the market. Well, GE, I guess, is the big outlier in that observation about the tendency of the agencies to uh, to get to triple C before D, <laughs> except for the administrations of the U.S. government. Would not GE have gone from triple A to well, uh, they, they certainly got a, uh, uh, a helping hand. Uh, they were not alone. Uh, I was among those, I have to say, that uh, was concerned about the moral hazard problem uh, prior to the global financial crisis. Henry Paulson uh, said at the time, uh, yes, I acknowledge that as an issue, but right now we have a crisis on our hands. And I have to say that had they stuck strictly to that moral hazard problem uh, or, or issue, they would have uh, had a lot of other investment banks uh, go down, uh, including some of the really uh, you know, blue chip names in that uh, business. And judging by the reaction of the market, the economy, banking system to the failure of uh, Lehman, our non-namesake institution itself, I, I think that um, the the damage was certainly worse. I, I don't believe that the Fed and the Treasury would have stood by and let Lehman fail had they recognized you know, what the consequences would have been. But you know what? This, it's, it's only a silver lining, Marty. For example, if uh, the world had uh, actually all failed, there would have been a lot of openings for new hires, right, in different industries. 
perhaps if you are in the business of hiring people and had trouble doing so. I mean, this is uh, it's one of the features of our financial lives. The labor market is tight. So how do you find qualified candidates? Usually it takes a long time. Uh, too many applicants, too many false positives. This is where a zip recruiter makes it easy. ZipRecruiter.com slash grant will deliver you to the site that will tell you about how you can hire better. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. And here it is, ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Marty, the, the reason I brought up um, how, the question of how junky is the junk market today is to uh, right now, everyone is kind of worried about uh, a recession. I think yield curve is actually trending. And I've heard even my parents talk about it, which is not a you know normal dining room topic. But people are worried that uh, we're going to end the longest business expansion in U.S. history at some point in the next year. And what does that mean for investing in asset classes that tend to default a lot? And you and I had actually had a conversation earlier this year about given what the shape of kind of the loan and the bond market is, and given just a, a prospectively mild recession, what might defaults look like? Based based off of what you see today, um, how, how might like a, just a run-of-the-mill garden variety recession like impact uh, default rates in the market today? Yeah, well, the, the loan market, because of the concentration in uh, Moody's category of CAA, would you know, feel a, a, a pretty... Uh, harsh uh, brunt of that. Now, th there's one peculiar kind of catch to this, which is that in addition to this you know, growth of the CAA sector within uh, leveraged loans, there's also been a deterioration of covenant quality in both bonds and loans. And in the last cycle that had already begun, and my response to that was, well, if why did we have covenants in the first place if <laughs> people are indifferent to the deterioration. And they're not all indifferent. There are uh, actually companies whose entire business is interpreting the very opaque language in those loan covenants on behalf of the investor. So the, 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 the point about it, though, is that there were those who said it's actually a good thing that those covenants are being loosened up because a lot of companies that are ultimately viable would otherwise be thrown into bankruptcy as they violate the uh, you know technical, you know, they have tech, so-called technical defaults, you know, violating covenants in particularly in their loans, and the creditors will panic and force them into bankruptcy. Whereas if you don't have that trigger of the uh, protective covenants, those companies will get through it and everyone really will be better off. Marty, give us an example of a technical default. The loans historically have had uh, what they call maintenance covenants uh, so that you have a test for fixed charge coverage, for example, or debt to EBITDA or some other measure of that kind. And if on a given financial statement date, a quarterly reporting date, uh, you're below that threshold, you know, uh, you know, above the level of uh, allowed debt, you are technically in default. Now, that will not automatically result in the company being thrown into bankruptcy. Uh, usually, the lenders will say, um, we'd like to monitor more closely. Uh, we, we, uh, you know, we want some measures to- Or get a higher rate of interest. Yeah, you? Uh, you know, or make some change like that. But if- uh, if they're worried that their recoveries will be less if they wait longer 
and that there is a real company and there isn't a likelihood of the company turning around, then they'll accelerate and force the company into bankruptcy. Right. I, I'm uh, thinking a lot about this negative rate stuff. You know, you you kind of wonder if you're of a certain age, um, uh, are you missing something? <laughs> uh, so it seems so logical that interest rates ought to be positive. After all, as Irving Fisher himself uh, pointed out, uh, uh, humans being impatient, they want things now, they prefer income now rather than later. And uh, the price that the patient saver exacts for foregoing immediate gratification might be uh, seen as a rate of interest. That's, you know, other one. So, um, so the question before the house is, well, perhaps we've become less impatient as a species. But how would you square, square that? With, so, so 2G is not good enough, 3G is not good enough, 4G is not good, we need 5G. <laughs> Or Amazon Prime. How has it made such inroads on the U.S. Postal Service if we are not impatient? Where do these negative rates come from? Yeah, I think that the uh, source is more likely in government policy and central uh, bank ha. intervention than in a change of... Uh, uh, from what what and 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 certainly what you're describing about impatience, I'm sure has some sort of uh, evolutionary basis for it. So it's unlikely that in the last twenty well, years. You, you ever heard the expression "boarding house reach"? Uh, yes, yes. Right. So it's when uh, somebody was very quick to grab a plate off a family-style dinner, and, that, and that's I think that comes from the age actually the age preceding about 15 minutes ago in the human sweep of time that uh, people were always hungry. Yeah. But um, all right. So uh, negative rates. To to the government's credit, um, Marty. No. This, oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a point you made before, but in 2009, the high yield default rate was the highest it's ever been in history. And in 2010, just one year later, it fell below its long-term average. And you've said that's physiologically impossible. Like no, you, uh, he said, quote, it's almost physically impossible. Oh, almost. <laughs> well, I, I, I would, I would you know, the almost is probably too strong in that case. <laughs> but, but that was one heck of a hat trick the, the Fed pulled off by dropping rates to zero and by doing QE. But just as you kind of look at the landscape today in terms of how leveraged companies are, how junky the market is, if you know we do kind of hit like a, a, a sudden bump in the economy and the Fed does roll out QE again, can they kind of pull off the same trick or is that kind of a one-time only party favor? Well, I think that's uh, really a, a, well, a million dollar question is kind of, you know, saying billion or trillion dollar question nowadays. Uh, you have to use, uh, you know, that kind of term. And, and uh, I, I think it's, it's a fair question uh, whether, you know, they used to talk about pushing on a string with respect to interest rates and maybe QE ha uh, has the same effect. In other words, you uh, it's, you reach a point where uh, reinstituting QE, pushing further, uh, buying even more long-term bonds just doesn't have the same effect and uh, you cannot head off a recession. See, that's, that's where uh, BlackRock has some suggestions for us. Yeah, BlackRock uh, has, uh, well, it's senior executives, some of whom are alumni of the central banking world, have recently come out and said the uh, European Central Bank, for example, ought to consider buying equities if bonds uh, run short supply. And uh, indeed, one of these worthies said that uh, the European Central Bank ought to consider just kind of uh, like uh, giving people money. Yeah. So I was thinking, and Phil, the author of ADG, was thinking, why not? Uh, shouldn't the ECB issue, this is going to sound crazy, but hear it out, gift certificates for BlackRock mutual funds to citizens of the EU. <laughs> well, everyone's a winner in that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So uh, interest rates are Martin Fritzman, among other things. Uh, the Times doesn't know this. Otherwise, it would not have lauded him as it did in that uncharacteristic quote. Accurate, to be sure. Marty is, is a great one for, I think, the integrity of the marketplace. Martin is not just about securities or writing for S&P LCD, which he does with great erudition, but also I think he 
you um, uh, care about the situation, to use that quotation. All right, so interest rates, we I think we can agree, are perhaps among the most sensitive and significant prices in mm -hmm. a market economy, certainly among the most consequential, I would say, perhaps the most consequential. And uh, we all might similarly agree that uh, price control has been demonstrated as inefficacious over the millennia it has been practiced. But what is the muscling of interest rates except a species of price control in that a most critical price? And if this were as bad as it seems, what does it say about the misallocation of resources, about the construction of redundant misses and masses, of uh, white elephants, of what's going on? What uh, to take the consequences of artificially of artificial rates and to think about them. How do you think about this? Well, malinvestment is uh, certainly a great concern. I think that it was a factor too little emphasized in the era that people remember as the dot-com boom. Uh, to my way of thinking, uh, it was an easy money period that uh, just happened to coincide with an emergence of a technology uh, called dot-coms. It wasn't as if uh, in normal times you would have had the kind of make-believe companies uh, getting access to the market. You also had uh, the so-called business plan telecom companies, uh, business plan because they had a business plan but no business at the time, and they were yet they were able to get access to the public debt market as companies that really belonged uh, in venture capital until they got to a stage where they uh, really had a, a viable operation. So uh, historically, uh, the the other story, almost unknown, is that uh, all the major motion picture exhibitors except AMC, which was the root of the problem, went bust during that period because. Uh, uh, motion picture exhibitors were able to continue financing, even though the long-standing rule of thumb of one screen per 10,000 individuals in the population had been violated. They were 30% over that, that level. That was a typo. Turns out that they thought it was one screen per 10 people. <laughs> uh, well, uh, so there were other examples, you know, not the dot-coms, my point is really the dot-coms were not alone. In this cycle, they're, you know, the, the securities prices themselves have been bid up. I have a harder time seeing, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, of where, you know, other than in, you know, the bonds themselves and, you know, equity valuations, if, you know, the, if the money is being really invested in projects that are that ill-conceived, as we saw in the 2000 period, um, you know, I, I think you can point to some spots of, of, uh, of trouble. But overall, I guess I, I just have a hard time seeing something comparable. How about, about 16.8 trillion of negative yielding securities? Well, yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think the securities themselves, you know, it, it, you know, the corporations, anything particularly recently, uh, have been uh, certainly disappointed the hopes of the uh, the tax cutters. Uh, you know, all that money was supposed to flow into capital spending, a large portion of it, which I think was very predictable, went into stock buybacks, because that's what happened the last time they did it, when they had a tax amnesty that resulted in repatriation. That's what happened then. There was no reason in my mind to expect it to be any different this time. But given that, I, I guess at least you can say, well, there's rampant speculation, maybe irresponsible speculation in the securities, but the corporations at least are not being diluted. Into, maybe, maybe it'll be a sovereign know. debt problem to start with the corporate. Anyway, um, Martin is, among other things, and by the way, this reminds me a little bit, and uh, Eric, uh, I know that you think along these same lines, that when you think about negative yielding debt, somehow you think about how to get your stuff through the mail with a minimum of effort and a maximum of efficiency. And I, this leads me to uh, Send Pro Online from Pitt and Post. I uh, was Send Pro Online. It's just a click, send, and save for as low as $4.99. That's $4.99, ladies and gentlemen, a month. Send envelopes, flats, packages, 
I guess you could send bonds too, right, Martin? Do they have bonds anymore you could send? Uh, they're, they're pretty well gone at this point. <laughs> I guess you could mail the, uh, the little X's and O's, the ones and zeros. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right from your desk, and you are back in business in no time. So, apart from being a current Yield listener, you'll receive a free 30 day trial to get started and a free 10 pound scale to ensure that you never overpay. Save time and money on mailing and shipping with SendPro Online starting at $4.99 a month, not five. $4.99. You can also qualify for special USPS rates for letters and priority mail shipping, calculate exact postage online, print from your PC. So go to pb.com slash grants pod to access the special offer. Now it's a free 30 day trial plus a free 10 pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash grants pod. Experience shipping made simple. All right. So uh, Martin Fritzen is not only the dean of all high yield, but he's also a very imaginative thinker about uh, finance generally. He's a Harvard man twice. He applied to Indiana University, disappointed he went to Harvard. <laughs> and he um, has been thinking about, in a, again, a characteristically imaginative way about these negative, yield, negative yielding securities, the whole phenomenon. So here, he's, he, so here, Marty, here's, this is what you have written. How can you default on a negative interest bond? On the face of it, since you're receiving interest, you can't fail in the obligation. So investors should regard it as a risk-free instrument, regardless of who the issuer is. That's right, right? Well, it's uh, dis, uh, it, it, uh, attractive as a concept. Uh, there is a fallacy in there that that issuer may have other debt that is interest-bearing. And if it defaults on that debt, there's likely a cross-default provision, which would put your bond into default, even though it's... it's Impossible for it to fail on an kind of a dispiriting thing. I thought we were home free with this stuff. Well, let's take the Alpine Nation of Switzerland. I believe that their bonds are negative out to thirty years. Their entire yield curve fifty. Fifty. It's all negative. So Switzerland can't default. Well, no, it has outstanding. I think it has outstanding some. But uh, uh, excuse me, I didn't mean to be pedantic, Evan. Yeah. You go ahead. Yeah. So so for Switzerland, where all their bonds are <laughs> well, well, there is one other catch, which is uh, there's rollover risk. So if uh, notwithstanding the fact that you've been collecting interest uh, on it all along, when it comes to maturity, assuming there is a maturity, and uh, in, in most cases there is, and in some cases they they have maturities as far as 100 years out nowadays. But uh, if you cannot roll it over at maturity, then that's a principal uh, default. Uh, so there there is at least one other way uh, for them. So yeah, d definitely don't go out buying these on the assumption that they're AAA credits, regardless who the uh, issuer is. I don't know. It's a, oh, I got an idea. So there was a letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal this morning. You might have seen it was a proposal that the U.S. government issue consuls, you know, the perpetuals, as Britain has done over the course of a quarter century. Not, of course, of a quarter millennium, 250 years or so. Um, but you begin, to, and, and I yield to um, the gentleman to my right, ladies and gentlemen, the gentleman in the, our, our guest, Marty Fritzen. Um, how about, Marty, how about, <laughs> this is, again, this is gonna say, but uh, keep an open mind. Zero coupon, perpetual, price to yield less than nothing. What do you think? Uh, it's a terrific deal. I, I would, if I, if I were in the treasury, I would jump on the opportunity if I could get people to what do you buy think? it. Yeah, that's, that's public finance, no? I think we need to nominate them to the treasury. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a... Uh... Uh, the, one encouraging fact is that the reception to Germany's 30-year uh, negative rate bond was somewhat lukewarm. So while there were some buyers, at least that was some sign that there may be some sanity left in the system. But, but yeah, wait a second. Now, you, Marty, are not exactly, I think, a by-the-letter advocate of the efficient markets hypothesis, but I have crossed swords with you, or at least I have, I have observed a sword 
itching to be crossed from your direction about comments uh, casting aspersions on the efficiency of the market. Are you saying that the bond market is not efficient? Well, I tell you, when you get to uh, negative rates, I think that it may be hard to determine. And, uh, you know, there are, I, I, I think that uh, just on a, on a serious note, the efficient market hypothesis, I think, is a great null hypothesis. I think it was a real contribution. And uh, to say, all right, that's the starting point. Now let's test against that. And there have been many, many studies. And, uh, you know, there have been some, I think, very credible uh, exceptions that have been found. But I think that's the test that you have to put any investment strategy up against. Um, you know, uh, Paul Isaac, uh, the man of so many original ideas himself, uh, suggests that uh, the whole bond market is suffering from uh, Stockholm syndrome. It is now the willing facilitator of its captors, the central banks. I mean, it is drive into uh, into guaranteed uh, nominal losses. Anyway, I, I, I hear someone preaching, which I think evidence the almost the symbol, the, the, the bell for a closing. Uh, well, one last question for Marty, though. So Marty, when you talk about what is the fair price for bond, you talk about what is the spread and what is that spread relative to history and also relative to your model, which takes in economic and financial market inputs. But the problem is there have to be certain absolute levels of yield that don't make sense high yield bonds default. These are risky credits. And at a certain point, if the yield falls below the long-term default rate, you might say that you're not being compensated for the risk. In Europe today, corporate bonds yield 25 basis points. That's one quarter of 1%. And high yield bonds there yield 2.77%. What's kind of the long-term default rate for uh, high yield bonds? At what point do you say that regardless of the spread, regardless of where that safe asset that has been manipulated by the governments, this just does not make sense anymore? Yeah, um, I, I have address that at a couple of points, uh, the high yield spread got to that to a level where you could say you couldn't really justify it on any kind of a long-term basis. The default rate historically runs about four and a half percent. That's the probability of default. The loss given default because you, you generally recover a certain portion of your initial investment uh, runs more in the, uh, you know, between two and a half, you know, three percent kind of a range. And uh, there have been a couple of occasions you know, when the spread actually fell below that level. So you were not getting paid any uh, premium over treasuries, which you would certainly buy in preference to high yield bonds if you weren't getting uh, sufficient uh, premium. So we're still a good distance from that. But uh, last I checked, the spread on the uh, uh, ICE B of A Merrill Lynch uh, U.S. High Yield Index was you know, a, a little, uh, still a little over 400. You know, based on that, we have a ways to go before we get to an absolute level where you say it just does not make sense at all. Notwithstanding the fact that they're very expensive and that could mean you uh, have a, 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 a very big loss if the market adjusts to uh, the proper level. You know, one thing that strikes me about uh, our discussion, more than that, about uh, mo many or most discussions about bonds and about this extraordinary rally and about these extraordinary levels, is that inflation almost never seems to figure into the list of worries or analysis. People are, I think, uh, spooked about a potential deflation, which is defined very yeah, liberally by the central bankers as anything below uh, two-ish. And uh, Yeah, well, they're really talking about disinflation rather than deflation. Yeah. That. Yeah, that's gotten... But, you know, is it, uh, I know that, Marty, you are not an economist to your great credit, but rather <laughs> someone who deals with tickers and QCIPs and investments. Uh, but you are also a thinker. You know, inflation is what they say they are seeking. And it is, of course, the mortal enemy of uh, fixed income securities. A bond is nothing but the promise to pay money, and they mean to depreciate that money they being the central bankers. So is it possible the entire asset class is going to be scorched uh, simply because uh, you know, 
uh, someone miscalculates and uh, trade war turns into something serious rather than something rhetorical, and I guess it's already serious enough, but it wouldn't take much, I suppose, to rejigger production uh, uh, supply lines and to uh, botch things up such that the CPI is running at four rather than two or one point something or other. What happens to all these bonds, trillions and trillions of them yielding nothing less, only a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a genuine risk. I mean, I, I think the Hyperinflation risk is a, little, is a different story because just, uh, just a, I'm, not, I'm talking yeah. about four, but talking about yeah. Yeah, four, yeah, no, because we, we have people asking about both, you know, and saying, well, is it going to well, let's eighteen? Go, let's zero let's go, go to four yeah. first. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, as far as going to four, I, you know, my recollection, uh, and I was around at the time, was that the idea of fine tuning of the economy was abandoned uh, sometime in the 1970s. And people seem to have forgotten that. Much. Event. Yeah. Much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We don't just fine tune the economy. We also fine tune elections now through monetary policy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but, you know, the idea that, you, yeah, you can keep it under that tight of control. You're saying our target is 2%. We're going to make sure it doesn't go to two and a quarter. And for that matter, to four. I, What's the margin for error in the sampling technique uh, for, for CPI? Would it be yeah. one basis point? <laughs> <laughs> or, or perhaps more. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think, no, because the, the whole uh, point is that once inflationary psychology comes in, you know, that's, you know, much more difficult to control. So, uh, yeah, I think you have to be skeptical of the idea that the Fed can do it. And, and, and by the way, the economists who were disparaging a moment ago, uh, I, you know, when you condemn them as a group or anything like that, but I think they do have a tendency to you know, have uh, excessive confidence in the ability of government using yeah, taxes and yeah. instruments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfairly. Well, uh, uh, Marty Frisson, we thank you. It's been it's been uh, terrific, and uh, thank you for all your good work, Evan. Good to see you. I suppose I'll see you around the campus. Eric, thanks for doing such a good job with those controls. Eric went on vacation, as is his want. He went to an interesting place. I forgot now. It was a Yemen, I think, was it not? <laughs> well, tourist sites aren't very crowded. <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are back from uh, vacation and uh, I don't know, the first day of school, it doesn't always feel funny. You get your protractor and compass and your pencil box <laughs> and your knapsack, which has none of the usual stuff in the bottom of it because it's new. Everything smells different. And, uh, but uh, I suppose uh, we'll talk again before June, right before school's out. Great. Terrific. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, this is Current Yield. I'm Jim Grant. <laughs>